Episode 85, Russia's Space Programme, with author Brian Harvey. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. Brian Harvey is a Dublin-based writer who's authored more than 14 books on space. His books have covered the space programs of USSR stroke Russia, USA, India, Japan, Korea, and China. And he's visited most of these countries and speaks at some level uh, some of these languages too. And over the many years, he's developed a deep understanding of the motivations and the politics, as well as the space technology that has emerged since the space age. Now, Brian, you're speaking to me from the fair city of Dublin right now, and Dublin over the years produced many writers, James Joyce, uh, Yeats, George Bernard Shaw. Is writing something that uh, is in the family, or uh, is this something that new that you're kicking off? No, not at all. It's something I, I became interested in when I was quite young, and I used to contribute to uh, school magazines and things like that. The, <laughs> Um, I w- would follow r- reporting on all kinds of uh, world events, including, of course, particularly space programs. And I had an early idea that maybe this was something I would like to do in some shape or form later in my life. Um, my <clears throat> principal work has been um, in the social policy field, uh, where I've worked as a, a researcher. Uh, I call myself an independent researcher, mainly working in the areas of uh, social inclusion, poverty, communities, development, uh, equality, um, uh, human rights, and the work of non-governmental organizations. Um, the <clears throat> many people find the uh, connection between um, spaceflight and social policy completely uh, un-understandable. Un- un- but <laughs> interestingly enough, in one country where social policy and space policy are actually intimately connected, uh, uh-huh. India, uh, people seem to find no such difficulty there whatsoever. What came first? Your interest in writing or your interest in space? Uh, um, probably, probably my interest um, in, 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 the air, in the area came first. And I used to collect whatever I could um, about the issue. In particular, I collected the uh, uh, daily newspapers wherever I could uh, f- find them. And I built up quite a collection uh-huh. um, of magazines, papers, tape recordings. Indeed, I used to listen into Radio Moscow World Service and record the activities of the Soviet space program uh, <clears throat> until um, in the 1980s I decided to do something with it which was to begin writing on it. Uh, in the 1980s there were not actually a huge number of books written uh, on space programs other than the American one. The American space program was well known, well publicized, well written about, but there was very little known or, or committed to paper I think about the other ones which led to my writing my, my first published book um, uh, which was Race into Space, A History of the Soviet Space Programme, which was published in 1988. And that came at a fortuitous moment because 
it was that was the time of perestroika and glasnost mm-hmm. in the soviet union when more and more information uh, knowledge and insights became available as to the soviet space program which had been considered quite a mystery and indeed the uh, british interplanetary society had set up in 1980 what was then called the soviet space forum and that was where um Many people who had never met uh, each other before, but who had independently and on their own followed and tried to disentangle uh, the mysteries of the Soviet space program used to come together. um, And we would share uh, what we knew uh, and a lot of speculation about what we thought had happened, was happening or would happen. Um, But as I was saying, with Glasnost and so on, it became possible to write a more definitive history about the Soviet space program now that we had a much better idea of what had been done, how it had been done. Uh, To give one particular example, Uh um, in the late 1980s, we began to get knowledge of the design bureaus, uh, which had hitherto been quite obscured from us. And we saw how the Soviet space program had been constructed by different design bureaus with different chief designers and so on. And indeed, how difficulties between them uh, were one of the main root causes as to why the Soviet Union did not get someone onto the moon. When you uh, picked the Soviet Union as a subject matter, uh, one of the reasons why there wasn't a great deal of information available in the public domain was twofold, I guess. One, the Soviet Union was tended to be highly secretive anyway. And secondly, it was a language problem. Um, So how did you get over those two hurdles? It, it, it became apparent over time that the program was not quite as secret as, as some people either were led to believe or led themselves to believe. Um, the Soviet Union actually published quite a bit about its own program, um, both through Soviet booklets, information available from the Soviet Embassy in London, Soviet Weekly Magazine, uh, Radio Moscow World Service, where they had a once-a-week program called Science and Engineering, uh, run by someone called Boris Belitsky, uh, who had been indeed Yuri Gagarin's interpreter during his visit to Britain in 1961. Uh, So that uh, many years later, I was asked to write a chapter in a book on how did we know about the Soviet space program, and I called the chapter Hiding in Plain View. for a very simple reason, which was, in fact, a lot more material was out in the open uh, than we realized. Uh, I also came to discover over time that the scientific results uh, had been published <coughs> uh, by the Soviet Union in a, in a journal they set up called Kosmicheski is Lido Vatel, or Cosmic Research, but they published it in English as well. Uh-huh. Uh, so these sources were available. Um, I think a lot of people didn't look very hard for them. Uh, I was interested that many years later, came to request uh, the the library in in the University of Dublin, Trinity College, for a copy of um, a Russian book, uh, which was their first atlas of the far side of the moon as a result of the flight around the far side of the moon of Luna 3 in 1959. And that atlas had been published in 1960. Mm -hmm. The amazing thing was, though, that in 2005, 
I was the first person to ever request this book out from the <laughs> library. Uh, it had sit there since 1959 or 1960, and we'd been telling ourselves that this was a secret programme, yet the publications were there. Um, it was a question of looking, looking quite hard, I think, in some cases. Uh, another example of how we found out about it was that they did have exhibitions of their space uh, equipment and their cabins, capsules, rockets, engines, and so on. Uh, on one occasion, I was visiting the Exhibition of Economic and Scientific Achievements in Moscow, and there was a uh, spacecraft up there we'd never seen before. And it turned out to be their oceanic observation craft. Um, and uh, having taken pictures of it and written a bit about it, um, this was considered um, uh, extraordinary um, that... Um, uh, this this would come out, but in fact, it was simply a question of being there, seeing it, realizing that this was something new and something different. It was also possible to follow the Soviet space program from the ground mm. um, in the British Isles. Um, I used to follow their space station, Salute, and then the manned Soyuz spacecraft that used to chase it, dock and rendezvous with it. On one occasion, um, when the Soviet Union launched its second orbital station but did not man it, Salute 2, we were given assurances that the space station was functioning normally, which was a typical phrase Mm -hmm. that was used. In fact, observing it from the ground, it was uh, flashing. Uh, It would flash brightly every two or three seconds, then be a normal object and then flash again. This was clearly a space station out of control, tumbling slowly end over end. But we knew now, or we knew then, that when we were told it was functioning normally, clear visual observations made it clear that it was not. So (laughs) by this kind of detective work, ground observations, going there, um, reading their publications, listening carefully to what they to put together, and you didn't need to be a genius to do this. It was very straightforward. There's nothing uh, magical about it. You could assemble quite a good picture of of their different activities. And the book you mentioned, Hiding in Plain View in Cold War Space Loots, The Untold Secrets of the Soviet Space Program, was published only in 2013, and it contains stories like you've just said from, from your experience, but others as well, and uh, it was edited by Dominic Pellin. Um, and one, to what extent did you need to, what extent do you understand and speak Russian? I've only very limited uh, knowledge um, of Russian uh, and uh, what I would call tourist Russian and ability to find my way around, uh, get directions and buy buy metro tickets. But I'm able to read a little bit more and also read it with the help of a dictionary. Um, And certainly nowadays I would follow some Russian language texts um, and uh, one can pick out the key words um, of what's being said, what's being announced and then make a decision, do you really want to investigate this more? I did for some books get um, some, I I figured out particularly important documents or extracts from them uh, professionally translated, Um, but that that was unusual. And indeed, there there were colleagues who were prepared to um, do that for me as well. So a, 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 a good knowledge of Russian was not essential, but thankfully I was lucky to know many people who did have that good knowledge, and um, um, they were very helpful to me. <laughs> and, and you mentioned the, your first book published in eight, uh, 1988, at the time of uh, Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika, and the Soviet Union uh, ended uh, in 1991, I think it was, the end of uh, 1991. Yes, yes. 
when did you first visit uh, Russia or USSR and uh, what were your initial impressions of the country? Um, my, my first visit was in 1984, and that was to uh, what was then called Leningrad and Moscow. <clears throat> but obviously, I, t- I took in what I could of the uh, space facilities there. Um, <laughs> and did, was that easy? Uh, were you allowed access? This is still during the Soviet era, so were you? Well, you could uh, you could access their um, their exhibition of economic and scientific achievements, uh-huh. and at that time they were also building up. Um, there, uh, the museum that became the Museum of Cosmonautics underneath the huge Tsiolkovsky uh, Memorial uh-huh. uh, in northwest, northeast Moscow. And that museum um, I kind of discovered by accident. Um, it was underground um, and they had, uh, they had put within it uh, a number of what became important exhibits. For example, there was the first example of their Mars lander, the Mars 3 lander, the first spacecraft to successfully soft land on Mars Mm -hmm. in 1971. Um, My particular problem that day was when I asked permission to photograph this object that had never been seen before, Mm -hmm. I was given a very firm niet. So so I could only describe what I had seen, but not provide photographic uh, evidence that I had actually seen it. Um, That was it. it was possible to visit the museums that they had opened then, um, and it was only really after 1991 that it became possible to go to places like, um, with any greater ease, uh, to uh, Star Town and the various design bureaus. They they were essentially rather off limits until then. It's a bit of a paradox. So here you are in 1984. Um, as a, a Westerner, um, they allowed you into the museums on the one hand, you've got um, the USSR trying to showcase their achievements. And then when you're there, they won't let you take photographs. Uh, it was a bit of a contradiction, it seems. Oh, oh it is. And it was a place that was uh, full of contradictions at, t- at the time. Um, 1984 was kind of very, very much the end of the... Uh, the end of the old re- regime, Konstantin Chernenko was the um, general secretary at the time. Um, and when I was on my next visit, which was in 1988, uh, it was the time of the party congress um, at which issues of uh, Glasnost and Perestroika were very much out in the open. And the congress was televised live. And I do remember people watching in astonishment uh, in the streets when um, there were real political debates on television for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, people daring to challenge the general secretary, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, at the Congress, argue with him uh, from the floor and so on. And this was something that had not been experienced in the modern Soviet Union up, up to that point. So it was a time of change and it was a time of contradictions. And indeed, um, the country does remain one of many contradictions, as, as do many Western democracies, too, in their own different ways. But it's a fascinating time in history, and particularly in space history, that you were able to, to get there and get that first-hand experience. So when was the last time you were in Russia? Or, or so? The last time was in October 2017, uh, two, less than 18 months ago, uh, which was the um, 60th anniversary of Sputnik. Um, and I attended the 60th anniversary conference uh, held by the Institute for Space Research um, in Moscow on the Sputnik 60. They had done one for the Sputnik 50 uh-huh. um, 10 years before that. And that to, to that conference were invited um, many of the um, uh, leading scientists um, around the world. And there were leading scientists there from China, uh, from France, from Germany, from the United States um, and other countries. 
Uh, and also we were, um, and, and it's a big event uh, in, in Russia. There was a, uh, a Kremlin reception for 12,000 people involved in the uh, space industry. And we were treated to um, a, the world premiere of a great film, which I've not yet seen on Western television, called The Rescue of Salyut 7. Uh, the best comparator, I think, would be the film Gravity. Um, but the technical effects, I would have to say, of the rescue of Salute 7 were at least as good, if not better. Um, and Salute 7, as, as people will know, was the um, Soviet space station, which uh, in the 1980s froze up um, because of a failure. But they sent up a crew of Johnny Beckoff and Savanik to dock with this out-of-control space station that was spinning um, and bring it back to life, which they did, and it was able to receive further visits of cosmonauts in 1985-6 before uh, the Mir space station became the space station of the Soviet space program. Uh, And I I think I've seen that. It was actually now available on Netflix or, or Amazon. And it is uh, a very gritty film. It's, uh, I found it quite realistic in terms of the acting. And it is in Russian with English subtitles. What's your assessment of where the Russian space program is right now? The, the Russian space program remains, I think, um, in, in a period of some difficulty. Um, there were several very big contractions in the old Soviet space program, the first of which actually began in the Soviet period. Um, in the period of economic chaos that began after the fall of the Soviet Union, when you'd uh, a period of uh, uh, rapid marketization and privatization, um, the space industry contracted by between a half and maybe even two thirds in the early 1990s and suffered a further contraction in 1997 with the ruble crash that year. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Soviet Russian space program has never fully recovered from that period. One thing, I, and I think in many ways it was a, a, a remarkable achievement um, that the Soviet Russian space program survived at all. Uh, it had to go through a transition of being a strongly straight support program to be becoming one of the most commercially successful in the world. And in the 1990s, principally with the Proton rocket, but also the Soyuz rocket, they attracted a lot of Western business, uh, which kept them going. They also attracted in uh, American support and American money. Uh, the Americans, as, as we all know, have paid for seats on the Soyuz spacecraft for many years now, a, pro- a process that is not yet fully over. Um, so, in effect, it was the rapid reorientation of the Soviet space program around international commercial imperatives that enabled it to survive. However, there are several things which I think are important to to observe at this point. Um, First of all, um, that the level of new development and new construction and new investment work has been uh, minuscule. Um, there has been the level of renewal of the Soviet space program has been quite quite limited at this stage. Uh, some new rockets have been uh, flown but not properly introduced yet. I'm thinking of the Angara rocket. Um, they have updated and improved some of their existing rockets, the Soyuz in particular, but we're looking at fairly low cost improvements altogether. Uh, Russian rocket engines have always been the best in the world, and they still are the best in the world. Oh, wow. But we, but we don't see the new investment in new rocket technology yet. In other words, the amount of money available for research and development has been very small, and space programs need ongoing research and development if they continue to move forward. A second thing is the age profile. Um, if you look at any 
pictures of people involved in the Russian space program. They're all quite elderly. They're people in their 50s and 60s. And this is good at one level uh, because these are people with knowledge, experience, strong career background and expertise. Um, We see some young people coming into the program and the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, has made a huge effort to try and involve young people in their early 20s in the space program. But you hardly see people in their 30s or 40s. And there could not be a greater contrast than with, say, the Chinese program, where nearly everyone is under 40. uh, And they're all very young and in their early 20s and mid 20s and late 20s and so on. And the third thing is that the Russian space program has contracted a lot. They have kept the manned space program going, as we know, with the Soyuz flights um, to the International Space Station. But the science program has has, um, suffered very, very badly. There are very few scientific missions being flown at all. Uh, The lunar program, although we've been given many promises of, of its resumption, has not yet happened. Two Mars probes failed, and at the heart of their failure was underfinancing, uh, under-resourcing both human and financial. Uh, <clears throat> and <clears throat> there's been only one real flagship scientific project called Spectre, um, the first being launched in 2011 and the second being due this summer. Um, problems of reliability have crept in, and reliability is not just a function of, of the money that is spent on quality control and so on. It's a, quality, it's a function of the quality of the human resources that are there. They too have suffered. <clears throat> So that there remain significant problems within the within the Russian space program, which have not yet been fully resolved. Um, if we look at the league table of world rocket launches, uh, the Russians led that table from 1966 to only three or four years ago. They launched more rockets than any other country. Russia has now slipped into third place and a rather poor third place. Uh, it's behind the United States. So Russia had 19 launches last year. The United States at 33. Both of them, of course, eclipsed by China. So the health of the Russian space program, those who follow it um, and who value what it does, have always been hoping that it would turn the corner and really get into a position of being able to um, get back to at least something that reflected its former achievements. But we're still some time off that yet. Roscosmos, uh, I think it's an announcement by the head of Roscosmos, Dmitry Rogozin, that they want to launch 45, have 45 rocket launches this year, uh, compared to, as you say, around about 20 last year. Uh, is that realistic, do you think? 45 launches no. from Russia this year? No, it's not, and I don't believe them. <laughs> um, I think I think they may well have the intention of doing so, but they the last time they achieved a launch rate of thirty five in a year was so far so many years ago. I can't remember. No. Um, <clears throat> so I think the intention may well be there. The financial resourcing is not, mm. and the budgets of the um, the budgets of the Russian space program I think reflect a bigger problem in the Russian economy, and the Russian economy is primarily dependent on its exports of raw materials, principally gas and oil. Uh, Russia is a very poor <coughs> excuse me, producer um, of manufactured uh, goods. Um, so it, it is essentially dependent on the prices of oil and gas and how they go up and down. Sanctions that may be imposed on Russia are not uh, since 2014 and so on. So the Russian economy has not diversified in the kind of way that would give the government the kind of revenues that would enable the amount of money that they go into the space that goes into the space program to be more sustainable. That's how I would read it anyway. Uh, you mentioned that um, Russia 
make still the best rocket engines. Um, given the new players like uh, Blue Origin and SpaceX, you know, they, they've been uh, remarkably successful. Okay, the innovations aren't perhaps as dramatic as what came out of uh, the Soviet Union. But their rocket technology um, is in, in the West now. Is surely it's catching up with Russia? Um, yes, it is rather gradually. Um, it, it's it's one of the reasons why Russia moved so far ahead in rocket engine technology was because they established the, the world's first ever rocket engine factory and design bureau in Leningrad in 1927. Oh, so they gave themselves an early they gave themselves an early start. And all the key processes of um, <clears throat> uh, uh, high propulsion engines they developed in the 1950s, the 1960s, the RD-253 engine on the Proton, the very reliable engines that are used on the Soyuz rocket, and in particular the RD-170, 180 series, which, and it, this is often forgotten, power America's main launcher, the Atlas V, um, the um, so, although the Americans may be speaking of their independence from Russia, uh -huh. uh, they will continue to use the Atlas V engine for some, the Atlas V and its Russian engines for some time. Indeed, the uh, Antares rocket that is used um, to go to the space station as well, that also uses a Russian-Ukrainian shell and Russian engines. Um, the Americans have declared their intention of freeing themselves of Russian rocket engine dependency many, many years ago, but they are finding it excruciatingly difficult to introduce new advanced engines of their own, uh, which I think shows you that uh, even though the Russian engines that we're speaking about, um, the RD-253, uh, 170, 180 series, date back to the 1960s and 1970s, they are still 50 years later the best in the world. You come out with some really impressive nuggets. Uh, you mentioned the very first rocket factory, rocket engine factory, was yes. in Russia in 1927. That's yeah. 30 years before Sputnik. So the, these rocket engines, presumably, were not uh, rocket engines for spacecraft. Well, they were. Oh. Um, the uh, person who developed them was Valentin Glushko. Oh. Uh, who subsequently became the chief designer in the Soviet space program. And um, it, it, not only were they possibly to be used for spacecraft, I think that was the only purpose that he ever had in mind for them. Uh, I think, I think we, we need to remember just how far Russian thinking uh, was ahead. The key principles, the key formulae, the key ideas around modern spaceflight were written by Konstantin Zielikowski from the 1890s onward. Uh, one of the ways I think this was most signaled was that in 1935, um, uh, Marshal Stalin invited Konstantin Zielikowski to be guest of honor and to make the guest of honor speech at the May Day Parade in Moscow. And <clears throat> Could one imagine this happening in any other country in the world? But Konstantin Zielikowski said at the May, May Day Parade, uh, I believe that our country will conquer space someday. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, not only that, but I believe that the first person who will fly in space may already be alive, and my hope that he is living now in the Soviet Union. At that precise moment in time, Yuri Gagarin had just passed his first birthday. <laughs> It's fascinating. And 1935, so Konstantin must have been quite elderly by then. He was, and he died later that year. He ah. lived from um, lived until 1935. He had a bit of a, a neglected 
experience with the Russian Soviet government in the early days. But it's good to see, even if it was Stalin who brought him up uh, to the higher echelons, that he did have his uh, day in the in the limelight. Well, uh, Russian scientists and intellectuals, what what are called the intelligentsia, a Russian word, uh, were in 1917 or shortly thereafter given a choice um, by um, Lenin and the government. Uh, They said your choice is either one, to work with the regime, in which case we'd be delighted to uh, uh, work with you and we don't care what your political background was, or second... (coughs) Uh, you may stay, um, but we do not want any criticism. Or third, you may get on a boat and leave the country. And uh, quite a number, several hundred, opted for the last course of action, and they were put on a boat that uh, sailed off to Bremen in Germany. That was called the Philosophy Steamer in a nice book by uh, Leslie Chamberlain that was written many years later. Uh But Tsiolkovsky was very happy to work with the uh, new Soviet government. And it should be remembered that most of the intelligentsia at the end of the old regime uh, were uh, considered a threat by the Tsar. Uh, he did not want um, intellectuals who had particular ideas about how the old Russian society should develop. So the old intelligentsia was normally at odds with the pre-Bolshevik regime. And when the Bolshevik government came in, I think quite a number did see their opportunity to advance their science, their knowledge, their interests with the new government. And Zyukovsky was one of them. And, and just going back to um, Glushkov, uh, Glushkov and, and Korolev, the, the chief designer, they had a bit of a, a perhaps a, um, supportive relationship at times, but uh, they did become competitors, didn't they, at some stage? They did. They they had a, a, a difficult relationship that was not helped by the period of the purges and so on. Um, the two did get on at the early stages um, of the what became the ten glorious years of the Soviet space program, but they did fall out later, um, principally over. And this might strike one as a somewhat technical issue to fall out over the type of fuel to be used uh, on uh, Russian rockets. Um, Glushko had uh, grown up in, like Korolev, in, in the uh, Ukraine. Uh, but uh, Glushko developed his interest in rocketry uh, by going through the old exploded shells of an artillery range. And the artillery used to use, in fact, nitric acid-based uh, fuels uh, for its uh, artillery and explosives. And Glushko figured that nitric acid was the best way to power modern rockets because you didn't have to cool the fuel down. Um, it could be kept ready for launch for very long periods of time. And also, um, when when mixed, uh, when you mix nitric acid with a fuel like UDMH, which is the principal one favoured, they exploded. Uh, sorry, they fired spontaneously, so he didn't need ignition mechanisms. However, the big problem with nitric acid-based fuels was that they were very corrosive, and in particular, if there were an explosion, they had horrific effects, um, particularly if anyone found themselves near such an explosion. Uh, Karlyev, by contrast, described these fuels as, quote, his words, the devil's own venom, uh, <laughs> and, and believed in relying instead on uh, liquid oxygen and uh, paraffin or petrol-derived or oil-derived uh, substances instead, which did have to be cooled. Um, but they were, in his view, much more controllable and less dangerous in human spaceflight. Uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, quite a number of other rocketry experts would tend to be on Korolev's side rather than Glushko's. The main reason why Russia struggled to get to the moon and their lunar uh, human spaceflight program to the moon was the 
failure in the very large rocket, the N1. What do you think was the main problem with the N1, the Saturn V equivalent of Russia, uh, that was responsible for it not succeeding? The, the, the failure of the Soviet Union to get somebody um, either around or onto the moon, and they did come, they, they could probably have got someone around the moon before the Americans if they'd cut a lot of corners, but, but their chief designer chose not to. The Russian space program was very safety conscious, despite some of the ways it was portrayed in the West. At the heart of the Soviet failure to get to the moon was management. Hmm. Um, there were the, the design bureaus argued between themselves, and the political leaders of the Soviet Union, Khrushchev and then Brezhnev, were unable to manage them. We had this vision of the Soviet uh, system as being a, a command economy in which the leaders in the Kremlin clicked their fingers and design institutes whirred into action and rockets were produced, presented and flown. This was not the case. In fact, the American capitalist system was much better at management uh, mm-hmm. of a space program and NASA were superb managers. They did of their flaws, um, but they managed uh, the, the, the control of the Apollo program uh, an awful lot better. <clears throat> Uh, and another consideration was the Soviet economy in the 1960s was far smaller than that of the United States. The Central Intelligence Agency throughout the 60s said, there's no way the Russians can beat us to the moon. Their economy isn't big enough, broad enough or diverse enough. It's just too small. And the CIA was ultimately right. And most of its judgments on the Soviet space program, which we now know because they're declassified, were extraordinarily accurate. Uh, <clears throat> so... Um, in, in, in retrospect, it's remarkable that the Soviet space program achieved as much as it did uh, in the 10 glorious open years, 57 to 67. Um, and then the lack of ability to manage it well, plus technical problems as well. And they did have technical problems um, with their N1 rocket, although I think it would have flown eventually and probably very successfully and would probably still be in, in use today if, if they had kept it. Um, meant that they did not get to the moon first. But they came very close to going round it first. Um, we'll recall the rivalry between the Russian Zon series and the Apollo series, uh, Apollo 8 getting to the moon first. But the um, R- Russians took the view the Americans were taking an extraordinary risk in sending Apollo 8 to the moon in Christmas 1968. After all, um, the, the first manned flight of the Saturn V and you sent it around the far side of the moon, that was a pretty risky thing to do. That risk paid off. And the American controllers believed that they had measured those risks risk carefully, and ultimately they were vindicated. Um, but there was the, the reasons for the Soviet Union losing the moon race were complex. They were principally managerial, competitive uh, issues of economic size and difference. But some aspects of the um, Soviet lunar program worked very well. The lunar module, for example, was tested to exhaustion in Earth orbit. It revealed no flaws. Huh? And indeed, um, China recently visited the Yangle Design Bu- uh, Bureau in Dnipropetrovsk in Ukraine in order to get the ideas as to how China should build its lunar lander for 2030. That's a fascinating conclusion. And you're quite right about the management. Um, I have heard that one of the reasons behind the success behind the American Apollo program was its management structures. And yet, we tend to think about management as something bureaucratic, red tape, and something that normally gets in the way. So, um, let's move on to the Indian space program. Now, you've one of the first authors I came across who wrote a serious book about the Indian space program, 
When did you first visit India and where in India did you go for your research? Um, I, I visited India in 2005 approximately. Um, I went to Ahmedabad, in, <coughs> which is capital of the state of Gujarat. And there were two reasons for going there. Uh, one was that the biographer of the leader of the Indian space program, uh, the leader being Vikram Sarabhai, um, his biographer, whose name is Padma Padmanab Joshi, uh, lived in Ahmedabad, and he kindly invited uh, me to meet with him so could, I could learn more about uh, Vikram Sarabhai, uh, <coughs> his work in developing the Indian space program. He was the inspirational genius behind it. Um, and I also got to uh, meet with and visit his widow, Miralini Sarabhai, in Ahmedabad. She still, she still lived there and uh, ran the Classical Indian Dance Academy in Ahmedabad. <coughs> so uh, those interested in classical Indian dance are strongly recommended to go there too. <laughs> um, the other reason for going to Ahmedabad was that it's the centre of the Space Application Centre of the Indian Space Programme. The Indian Space Programme is quite decentralised um, and the application centre which is so important for, for India was located is located in Ahmedabad so you could meet the specialists who uh, interpret the earth resources data coming down from uh, Indian earth satellites there and meet many of the officials there and um, the other of course facilities of the Indian space program the launch centre in Sriharikota the rocket engine development centres and so on are located elsewhere so my, my sole visit has been to Ahmedabad and, and you've written uh, your two books now, I think. The first one was The Two Roads in, Into Space, the Japanese and the Indian Space Programs. In, yes. But what's that, in 2005, was that? Um, you no, know, that was 1999, and, and the comparison was with the Japanese Space Program. Yeah, right. And then later, the Emerging Space Powers, that you published in 2010. That's right, yes. How do you assess now, you know, it's 2019, um, you've seen the evolution of the space program in India. How is it, uh, how do you assess it as it stands today? It, it's interesting that if you'd asked me the question 10 years ago, I would have said that China, India and Japan were roughly on a par uh, with their level of space development. Um, but since then, China has emerged very much as the world's leading uh, one of the world's leading space superpowers, along with the United States and Russia. Uh, Japan is the country that seems to have um, developed the least, not not in the sense that the Japanese have not done many valuable, interesting and fascinating things like flying to the asteroids and so on. They, they've done that. But as a program, um, the Japanese space program has been uh, quite severely affected by relatively restrained levels of spending. Um, and Japan's continuing difficulty in its economic development. Um, whereas, whereas China has moved to what we'll call superpower, superpower status, uh, India has made a lot of progress. The Indian launch rate has increased a lot. Uh, India has gone to places where it had not gone before, um, like the spacecraft to the moon um, and like its Mars orbiter, uh, which is something that the Chinese have not yet done. And although the Japanese flew a spacecraft to, to Mars, um, it did not enter orbit around Mars. Um, and the Indian applications program, which was always its bedrock, has expanded a lot. So the Indian space program seemed to have expanded and moved ahead uh, 
quite a lot in the past number of years, I suspect because it has attracted uh, additional funding. And we know that the benefits from the Indian Space Programme in terms of economic and social development have been um, substantial. Um, So, in effect, the programme is reaping the rewards of that earlier investment. uh, so that um, I think India has made a lot, of, a lot of progress in the past 10 years and India has signaled its intention of developing a manned spaceflight program, um, work on which has, has begun with the setting up of a manned spaceflight centre and the beginning of the process of recruiting astronauts for that with a target date set a number of years ahead. Now, given um, that China, as you said, is, is way ahead, it's almost a superpower status, um, I think India last year had seven launches and China was way ahead uh, of everybody else with about, was it, uh, 39? What chances do you think, you know, these are all two countries, huge populations, um, very, okay, at different levels, but fairly successful space programs. We don't hear much about collaboration between the two. Do you see that uh, developing in the years to come? I think this is a very interesting area, and indeed, historically speaking, um, the, there was collaboration, a lot of collaboration between India and Japan, um, because the founder of the Japanese space program, Hideo Itokawa, spent quite a bit of time with Vikram Sarabhai in the 1960s and 70s, um, when the um, Indian space program was being developing. So there was, a, there was a connection there. But when we're looking at Japan, India, and China, these are largely self Standing programs. Um, there is cooperation between these three countries and the others. Japan has always had uh, close connections to the United States, particularly in terms of launcher development, and is involved uh, with the United States with the International uh, Space Station very much. Um, uh, China, by contrast, its space program grew up very much in isolation. Uh, indeed, when its first satellite was 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 launched, Zhou Enlai insisted that the words we did this through our own unaided efforts, be added to the press communique about the launch. And the, American, the Americans have subjected the China, China over the years to on-off periods of sanctions, which are quite intense at the, at the present time. Um, uh, and um, these three programs, although they have international connections, China, for example, has worked with the Europeans quite a lot, France in particular. India has also developed collaborative programs with Europe and again, particularly with France. They tend to work as self-standing programs in their own right with not a lot of um, investment in cooperation. They do work together under the Asia-Pacific Council for Space Cooperation, but that is largely a sharing (coughs) uh, organization under the Chinese Secretariat. Um, I would have thought there was scope for greater cooperation between the three countries. We do know that the scientists of the three countries meet together a lot at international uh, events and have a good level of uh, personal interaction between them. I don't know whether the uh, political background of um, sometimes uh, difficulty and indeed confrontation between the three countries is a a bit of historical baggage that may stand in the way or not. Uh, I'm actually inclined to think that these programs, because they are so very self-contained and and carefully managed and programmed, which is what you have to do when you have a limited budget, that may be behind it. But it is also possible that in the next number of years, um, they will work together more. You know, I I remember the days of um, Russia or Soviet Union and 
America being competitors, and it did end up with the cooperation in the Apollo-Soyuz test project in the mid-70s. So there was the coming together of what looked initially like two competitors, and I think given time, you're right, it, it, India, Japan and China will develop some level of cooperation in years to come. And given the backdrop of new emerging technology and the commercial space sector, some really exciting times to look forward to in the next few years. Brian Harvey, thank you very much indeed. That was fascinating. And maybe we can speak again in the near future about China's space program. You're very welcome. Thank you.